This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Jim Chanos is a legend in the world of shorting and hedge funds uh, and institutional investing. And this is just a tour de force. If, if you are at all interested in running a two-sided book as opposed to a long-only book, if you want to know what it's like to be a short seller, uh, how to uncover financial fraud, what it was like to uncover some of the biggest frauds of the past 50 years, whether it was Enron or Tyco or just go down the list, uh, then you are going to love this conversation. And, and rather than have me babble incessantly about how much fun it was, I'm just going to say with no further ado, my conversation with Jim Chanos. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Jim Chanos. He is the founder and managing partner of Kinecos Associates, the largest exclusive short-selling uh, investment firm uh, in the United States. It was launched in 1985. He is a celebrated short seller who is known perhaps best for his uh, short sale on Enron uh, about a year before the company collapsed to zero. He is a lecturer at and a Becton Fellow at the Yale School of Management, where he teaches graduate students about financial fraud. Jim Chanos, welcome to Bloomberg. Good to be back, Barry. Thank you. It is. I've been looking forward to this a while. And I, I have to begin by pointing out that, I don't know if this is true, you have to confirm this, Kinikos is Greek for cynic, is this right? Yeah, it, it means uh, literally dog-like, but the, the Kinikos were a group of philosophers who lived outside of Athens in the Golden Age, um, and they, they basically uh, were uh, searching for the ultimate truth. They, uh, they believed in uh, independence of thought and self-discipline, and Diogenes was their philosophical leader. But it's the root of the word cynic in English. And, and you were obviously referring to the golden age of philosophy. So let's talk about the philosophy that led to both cynicism and short selling. You began your career as a financial analyst at Payne Weber and then Guilford Securities and Deutsche Bank. These tend to be long-only firms or their clients are long-only. What, what was it like then when there was a heretic in their midst? Well, when I got onto Wall Street, the, the first uh, gentleman who hired me um, in 1980 was completely puzzled as to why anyone would want to work on Wall Street. Because in, in <laughs> 7980, uh, it was not uh, a lucrative uh, a field. It was uh, We were at the tail end. We didn't know it of a 16-year bear market. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and in fact, from 1966 to 82, in real terms, the Dow dropped as much as it did in, in 2932. So flat in nominal terms, but down 80% in real it terms. It was, yeah, it was basically peaked at 1,000 in 1966 and bottomed out at seven, 700 something in, in 82. But as you say, in real terms, it was a disaster. And so um, so I got a job as an, as a, as a, an analyst doing deal books. Um, but I, I was fascinated with the market and, uh, and always had, had, had uh, invested whatever spare money I had in the market in college. My dad had pushed me to sort of learn about it. And uh, the head of, uh, the head of uh, retail sales was down the hall. So I used to spend my lunch hours and after work talking to him. And ultimately, he hired me in 1982 
uh, to come work at a, at a small firm that he was uh, forming, um, leaving Blythe Eastman, Payne Weber, and, and forming Guilford Securities. So I went there as a securities analyst, and that was fantastic. Um, uh, he, he gave me latitude to do whatever I wanted Long, to do. Long, short, buy, yeah. sell. They, My they first were... recommendation was a short sale of Baldwin United. So, uh, so let's we'll talk a little more about Baldwin United um, in, a, in a few minutes. What was the reaction in the community, be it analyst community or or typically mostly long-only investment community, that here's this young whippersnapper and their first report is not just hold or neutral or sell, but sell short. Yeah, it, it wasn't received very well, as you can imagine, uh, particularly since the big brokerage firms uh, who were recommending stock were also making a fortune selling their annuities. And so I it think- was a, It was a double- Payer. So not only were they placing the stock, they were also placing. They were Baldwin was an insurance company. They're selling annuities, single premium deferred annuities. They were the old Baldwin piano, by the right. way. Right. Yeah. Which then more that's sort of like iced tea companies morphing into blockchain companies. <laughs> today. Well, their, their CEO was a charismatic guy, and he made his mark at the company selling pianos door to door. And I've always said, if you can sell pianos door to door, you're a pretty good salesman. Yeah. So, um, and uh, and Baldwin was was the the fastest growing financial services company in the United States in 1982. Um, and it was, you know, Fortune's most admired, you know, blah, 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 blah. A lot of things that we would see later, 20 years later in the Enron story, were uh, were basically uh, uh, indicative of Baldwin back then. So, so what alerted you that not, things were not all kosher at Baldwin Piano slash Insurance, as if that alone wasn't enough? So I was, I was as a young analyst, I had no insurance uh, analytical experience, so I had to sort of start at, at ground zero, which I think at the end of the day was was helpful for me because I had to learn basically um, from scratch. And it was while I was I was making phone calls and, and trying to understand how it was that Baldwin could use insurance company money to do acquisitions. That was sort of the the, the game mm-hmm. that they were playing. I got a phone call um, one night. I was working late at the office, and it was. It was someone who wouldn't give me their name and said, I understand you're, you're asking questions about Baldwin United. And uh, I said, yeah, who's this? And he said, it's not important who this is, but you should be aware that there are insurance files at the state of Arkansas insurance department that are public that you should get. And, you know, click. And, uh, and so- Arkansas. Next, in, in Arkansas. And so the, the next morning I told my boss that, and he, of course, asked if I'd been drinking. And, and so I said, you know, no, I got an anonymous call and we should check it out. And we hired a local law firm and it was a treasure trove. It was letters going back and forth from the state regulators to Baldwin, basically saying they were insolvent <laughs> and that they needed to raise capital immediately and that they would no longer be allowed to use insurance company money to make acquisitions and blah, 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 blah. It, it was the whole story laid out in public documents. And, That's and so, yeah, and years later, I was at an insurance conference and I heard the same voice from behind me. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a well-known insurance analyst who at the time was in Chicago. And uh, he could not cover Baldwin. His firm would not let him because he, he looked at it and saw it was a it house was a of firm. cards. And the firm had sold annuities, so they told him to shut up. And uh, I've always kept him an anonymous ever since, but uh, it was that that tip that helped. That, that set you off. Let's talk a little bit about some of the fascinating fang stocks. <laughs> Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Google. Uh, what doesn't get me- mentioned in that list is is Tesla. 
And some people have said Tesla may not be worth as much as its current market cap. You have a slightly different view. What's your perspective on Tesla? Well, I think the stock might not be worth anything um, it, it, on, a, on a pure financial analysis basis. It, it is, to us, it's one of the bellwethers of this market. It is, mm-hmm. it is a hopes and dreams stock that uh, investors have pinned, you know, really, whatever their expectations are on a future, a green future globally, they have, they have put it on this stock and on this CEO who has done a really good job in promoting that very vision. The problem, of course, is is that it's an automobile company, right. and it's it's increasingly having problems making automobiles, and soon is going to be facing much more competition from people who do know how to make automobiles. In, in fact, every major automobile manufacturer around the world, Europe, Japan, the United States, has come out and said, we will have some form of an electric or hybrid vehicle either throughout our line, or that's what our entire line right. will consist of. So the question, is Tesla an actual paradigm shift? Are they a game changer in the world of automotives? Or are they a stock that simply you know, came up with an idea that everybody else has adopted, but there's nothing unique to the company other than a very charismatic leader? I think it's a great question, Barry. I think they were a paradigm shift six or seven years ago when they introduced the Model S. And I have always said the Model S was an important car because Musk made EVs, electric vehicles, sexy. Right mm-hmm. Prior to that, any type of green vehicle was a compromise. The Nissan Leaf, uh, the Toyota exactly. Prius. And, I, and I, I know you're a car guy, Barry, and, and so you know that. And, and suddenly you had this Model S, which was a car that was aspirational, car you wanted to drive up to the country club or to, you know, the, the, the restaurant valet, and, and everybody wanted one. And the problem is, of course, the Model S now is seven years old. Right. And finally, finally, the Europeans and, and Detroit and ultimately Japan um, are coming with their vehicles. We have Audi and Jaguar coming this year with very good-looking, sexy crossover cars. Uh-huh. And then um, near and dear to your heart, we have Porsche coming out the next E-Mission. year. Mission E. That is a handsome car, I got to say. Which is a gorgeous car, yeah. and it's coming out next year, and, and is a sports car designed from the bottom up from, I believe, their Le Mans team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so now Tesla is in, uh, is, is in a, a, a scrum. They are going to be competing with well-financed operations with good R&D, whose technology is is probably well ahead of theirs at this they, point. They can't fund themselves by selling flamethrowers every couple of months? <laughs> flamethrowers and hats. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and but we're laughing, but that's kind of a problem, right? Because you have a CEO who's kind of all over the place. Um, we believe, actually, his passion is SpaceX. So I, sure. think, I think he's going to actually hand over the reins uh, as CEO at some point in the next few years. Um, and 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 move full time over to to SpaceX. Plus, plus the the Hyperloop and the boring. Oh yeah, the Hyperloop. I forgot about the Hyperloop. Yeah, that's an, and yeah. supposedly they're really exploring doing something with that. So, the boring company is is testing boring equipment. Yep, yeah. and, and and so there's a lot going on there, and and that's part of I think that's part of the allure of the of the the company and its valuation is is the CEO. The problem again is that he's. He's up against serious competitors in his core business. And and then finally on that, uh, we track executive departures. We mm-hmm. have this list we put out. And it is stunning 
as to how many senior executives have left this company in the last two years. Uh-huh. The only two companies uh, that we've seen in our history with a similar executive departure pattern were Valiant Pharmaceuticals a couple years ago yeah. and a little company in Houston called Enron. Right. And, and it is never a good sign when almost all your senior executives are leaving at the stock price at a, at a high. That's telling you there's something wrong, and I and I don't know what it is, but but all almost all the senior executives at Tesla see something and are leaving stock option packages on the table. Huh. What about the um, idea that some big company, maybe it's a GM, comes along and buys them uh, as a rescue package and jumpstarts their own um, EV pro- uh, program? Well. The problem with that is, is that GM, for example, the reason you would buy Tesla ostensibly is because of technology, not because of manufacturing process, right? For their, sure. Their manufacturing process is actually pretty poor. It's the Model Three is their new car appears to have lots of issues um, mm-hmm. upon production. So you would be buying them for for Elon's vision. Right. Or their technology. Little brand halo also. Little make you a little hipper than you General Motors might be. It, just using them as an example. It, it it might be. But the problem is of course that, that GM's cruise software is now better than Tesla's autopilot. Right. And and their product is out and they're manufacturing yeah, it. Exactly. And and so um, and, and you have to be careful because, again, most of this mystique at Tesla is based on one car, the Model S. Right, which is still a beautiful yeah, car. It's, it, it, se- it's seven years old, but it's right. – yeah. But the Model X w- was, was just – was lukewarm. It was, Too expensive for what essentially is a n- mid-sized van. And, and, and now the Model 3 is, is, is maybe problematic. And, and mm-hmm. so you've got, a, got an issue here where you've got basically a – $50 billion market cap, which, by the way, is almost the same as GM's and, is, right. and is exceeds Ford's. Which um, is amazing. Uh, you'd be buying a company just as big as yourself to basically lose money and, and have a little cachet. I don't see it. Huh. Ma- makes perfect sense. Um, so the other side of that, let me push back a little bit on Tesla. They've completely changed the game. They've forced everybody else in that... Somebody, maybe Toyota does a joint venture with them, maybe some other Chinese or Korean manufacturer comes along and says, we want a toehold in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, what What is the company worth in a takeover, or do you end up in a take-under situation? Well, you're, you're a little late, because Toyota and Daimler did do joint ventures with Tesla 10 years ago yeah. and sold all their stock. Oh, they did? I didn't realize They that. did, yes. They did. In fact, both... Interestingly, both of those both those companies sent teams of engineers to help Elon get the Model S out, and so I think that that we've already seen this. And and the uh, the problem is 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 we we just discussed is that the valuation of the company, which is uh, fifty billion fifty billion dollars in equity cap, and then by the time uh, we plus roll, debt plus debt, you're talking about a sixty plus billion dollar total enterprise value. This would sink. Almost anybody but the very largest companies who would have to finance not only the sixty billion cost but the operating losses. Huh. So you you would destroy the earnings of almost any auto OEM by buying Tesla. Fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about hedge funds and and how they've changed over the years. The last time you and I sat down for a conversation was about three years ago, or a recorded conversation, I should say. Uh, you mentioned that back in the day, uh, there were a few hundred hedge funds, and, and out of those, 
20 or 30 were reliable alpha generators. Today, there's 11,000 or so hedge funds. How many and of probably those, twenty or thirty reliable right? Alpha is, is it that? Is it still that smaller percentage of of, it's, of it's, regular? You know, it it's. I have a little bit of a vantage, um, a vantage point, because not only am I a manager, but I also sit on some investment committees, reasonably large investment committees. Mm-hmm. So I get to see uh, the pitches. I get to see the pitches, and I get to see the results from a lot of people in the industry as 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 someone who allocates capital. And I have to tell you, I mean, the, the industry is is wanting, um, and it's wanting across the board. And alphas have dropped, including our own, um, over time, um, whether they've been competed away. Um, now, another theory I have, of course, being on the short side, is that lower interest rates, particularly for short sellers, have reduced rebate income. Mm-hmm. And so when I started in 85, um, if we sold the stock short before anything happened, we earned six or seven percent annually on the cash proceeds, and we split that with the prime broker. And now that number, more recently, was zero, right. and that's that was a significant sort uh, source of returns. Um, so I think that that um, that's one aspect, particularly for fundamental short sellers. But look, I mean, markets have gotten more and more efficient. The more you have smart people pursuing something, the tougher it's going to be to beat the market. That's just a given, I the think. The paradox of skill is what Michael right. Mobison calls and then of, it. And of course, the size, right? I mean, you know, it's a lot easier to uh, to beat the market if you're running 15 million than uh, than a few billion. And right. so, even, even a few hundred million, there's still some, some opportunity. But some of these funds are 5 and 10 and $20 billion. That's tough to move, swing that around. Well, the other thing is that, of course, you, you stop managing a portfolio and you start managing a business as well. And I, I'm always mystified by my peers who who have been very successful and are now running, you know, as you say, ten or twenty billion dollars, but have two hundred to three hundred employees. And I just I mean, that just blows my mind. That's a reasonably large business. How, how big is Kinecos these days? We're probably we're the same as we've been for years and years and years, basically about thirty people. Um right. Tens. Which is still work to manage, but it's not a full time job. It's not three hundred. Yeah, it's right. not three hundred. It's it's that's it's a it's a magnitude of difference. So, given your perspective as both a fund manager and an asset allocator, when you're reviewing a hedge fund and deciding whether or not you're going to give them capital, what are you actually looking for? What what would make you say this is a place I could park some money? So some. You know, Julian Robertson said it best, um, and, and I think to some extent it's why the Tiger Cubs have been so successful. Is what is your edge? And he always, he always, when when having a, a, a bear and a bull discuss debate a stock at his shop, um, we ran money for him, and he would have us come in and talk about one of his shorts, our shorts, because someone in the shop may have liked it on the long side, and he would constantly say, "What is your edge? What do you know that the market doesn't?" And, and, and that applies, I think, to fund managers generally. What is in your process that gives you an edge, whether it's trading-wise, whether it's research-wise, that, that basically sets you aside that, that you see things differently and you see, you see the reality versus the perception of reality? And, and so what I found is that numbers can be very misleading because um, very smart people can struggle um, and very, very... Uh, uh, Mediocre people can excel for periods of time. Um, it's just not where you want to place your bets. And so, if if 
as an allocator, if we see someone who we think is not only smart and hardworking, but has a, a, a definable and sustainable edge, um, that's someone that you might want to consider, particularly if they're struggling, uh, to be allocating capital because reversion to the mean is also a pretty powerful process. So when you say struggling, you mean struggling running the fund or struggling in terms of their performance? Outperformance. You know, maybe they're not generating any alpha. They're, they're, they're matching the market and, and or, or slightly behind the market, but, but yet you know, have a, have a pretty superior long-term track record, same people doing it, same process. Uh, and, and so sometimes you see, sometimes you see an opportunity to do that. What most people do, of course, is they just simply look at performance. Right. And, and it's, it, it, that alone will not do it for you because you're always going to chase that which has been hot. And, and it's so hard to, to say, well, this guy is not doing well. We should be allocating some capital because they're going to come back into favor. And, and by the way, they're still doing what they've always done well. Um, very, very tough. And then, of course, you have to you have to disaggregate the beta from managers, and that's that's essential. Um, you have to take out the market because we can buy the market for ten basis points, right? right? So paying f- big fees to people who are who are either matching the market with no no edge or or leveraging the market to get out performance is a fool's errand. You know, I read somewhere that um, past performance is is no guarantee of future returns. Uh, I think I saw that on some document somewhere. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, some of those. Conseco, Tyco, Commodore, Coleco, Integrated Resources. I don't, think I don't think your listeners were alive when most of those were done. There were more recent ones. Uh, so, so, so let me ask a different question then. Tell us about something that in hindsight you looked at and said, why don't we short that? That's right in our strike zone. Any anything that you looked at and didn't pull the trigger? I, I think on? the biggest, the biggest, the biggest whiff uh, that that we had done work on and, and took a pass on was Japan in the late eighties. Now, mm-hmm. now I was short a lot of commercial real estate stocks in the U.S. in the late eighties. The tax law had changed. Everyone had levered up into commercial real estate to sell it to the Japanese. Right. Um, the tax shelter business was was kneecapped by the tef, by the Tax Act of '86. And when we looked at what the Japanese were doing, we saw them doing all kinds of dumb things. And I began looking at the Japanese banks, which at the time were the largest in the world, and some of the Japanese conglomerates, which were the largest in the world. And the numbers didn't make any sense. But I felt I had my hands full in the U.S. And and what I really missed was a 20-year bear market in in these heavily leveraged Japanese companies. And, and compared to even the dot-com NASDAQ, the Japanese market was far more expensive, far more overstretched than, than NASDAQ even got at the peak in 2000. Right. It was, and, and, and of course, it, 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 got to, it got to just insane heights that it's still not scaled. Um, and, and so I think that that, that was you know, one of our greatest, uh, our greatest misses um, fundamentally. So from Japan, let's just hop across the China Sea and talk about China. Yeah. You were very negative on China uh, for a long time before they had a little bit of a hiccup. Tell us about the China trade and what do you think of the Chinese economy here right. and that region as a, uh area to invest in? Well, it's funny that we talked about Japan because the analog that China eight years ago when we started talking about it, most most resembled was actually actually Japan of the late 80s. If you think about it, it was a state 
driven capitalist model that has, was a better model, some thought, than the U.S. or the Western model. It was heavily relied on debt. Mm-hmm. It was heavily relied on a domestic real estate bubble. It was very trade-oriented, export-oriented. Um, it, it had a protected currency. It had its own culture. I mean, the, the similarities between Japan in, in 2009, 2010, and uh, China in 2009, 2010, and Japan in 1989, 90 were, were actually somewhat significant. They, of course, everything is different. And, and, um, but when we started looking at China, the FXI, which is the H share you know, ETF, was trading around $41. It's just 46 now. So it's up about, it's up a little bit more than 10% in eight years. The, uh, the rest of the markets uh, that we were looking at you know, have doubled and tripled. Mm-hmm. Um, so China has been one of the better places to be short for the past eight years if you're a short seller. I think that what's really interesting about China is how little has changed in the eight years. Xi Jinping is basically now the emperor. Right. But the whole concept of all the stuff you've heard in the last eight years, oh, they're going to become a consumer-driven economy. That hasn't happened. They're going to reduce investment as a percent of GDP. That hasn't happened. Uh, you know, the, the currency is going to either go up a lot or down a lot. That hasn't happened. Um, what's really interesting about China is that it's pretty much status quo. And the model, the, the economic model that is China is still the same. It relies heavily on debt. And so debt is still growing. Uh, it's not growing as fast as it was eight years ago when it was growing 20 to 30% a year. It's now growing 10 to 15% a year, but it's still growing at twice GDP growth. And they can't get off the, the, the stimulus or the steroids, if you will, of just constant debt injections to build new airports, roads, high rises. It's still what's driving the economy. So what's the end game for China? I wish I knew. Um, it, it's 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 fascinating to watch because everybody sees it now. When we started talking about it eight years ago, it was a controversial viewpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, now now it's not right. It's hard to the debt levels have doubled and tripled since that, then. That sixty minutes um, segment on the ghost cities of China. Yeah. I I as I was watching that, I'm thinking Jim Chanos has to be turning cartwheels over this. <laughs> What's fascinating about that, of course, is is that the the, the cities that they showed have, as the bulls have said, mostly filled up. Mm-hmm. The problem, of course, is, is there's new empty cities. There's another 50 cities Yeah, and, and, and this is the inherent problem, right? And so I think that, that, that any time you've got a model that's credit-driven based on, on a property bubble and, and, and investment now that, that is not needed, I, I always joke that Hainan, the island of Hainan, their tropical island in the South China Sea, when, when we started looking at China, it had one international airport. Um, about three, four years later, they completed the second international airport, which is not fully utilized today. Mm-hmm. And now they've begun uh, work on a third international airport, which is just folly. On that little island. Yeah, that little island. So so this is the problem with an investment-driven model. All three of those have contributed to GDP. Sure. Uh, construction you know, dollars go right into GDP. But, of course, the economic returns in each one will have dropped. I'm, I'm going to mangle this data point. I believe it was you who, who had either said or written, China over the past three years used as much cement as the United States 
used in the entire 20th century? Yeah, I think it was, it was not us. It was, it was somebody else. Bill Gates, I know, pointed it out. I don't know who the originator of the data point was, but I think it was China in the last 10 years has, has used uh, as much uh, uh, concrete as, as the U.S. did in the last 100 plus. Um, That's astonishing. And it, and it, that is true. Um, it, it, it's remarkable to look at what China, since it entered the WTO in 2001, has done. Um, and it has done so. It has done so, and it has, and it has literally transformed a country in less than twenty years. The problem, again, of course, that that the bears will keep pointing to is you've pulled a lot of it forward. Anytime you use debt right. to fuel to fuel your growth, you're basically pulling forward consumption, and and that's just a, an economic identity. Right. And so there will be a reckoning at some point. The debts do have to be serviced or inflated away, and and one of the two will happen. So let's let's talk about a few other um, topics that I, I really enjoy your perspective on. Uh, we talked about hedge funds earlier. I've been reading a decent amount about private equity, and they're being challenged in terms of are they really generating the sort of above market returns they claim? They're they're doing a little bit of um, let's just call it creativity. So when you for those who are unfamiliar, when you make an investment in private equity. You're committing capital, but you're not actually giving them capital. So you have more or less have to sequester that. They calculate their performance based on literally when the money hits, which could be two, three, four years later that you're sitting with capital tied up. That's not yet working. Theoretically, it's in a short-term fixed income fund. What What's your perspective on what's going on with private equity? I assume you allocate on some of the boards you sit – um, money into we that do, space. And, and some of my best friends and clients are in private equity. Mm -hmm. So you know, look, I, I I always tell them I'm jealous of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they have a great business model. Um, and 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 they're one of the the two areas in in, in investment management where nobody's questioning fees and or returns are venture capital and private equity. Right. And remember, Bain Capital and Mitt Romney. There was a lot of um, reports about. Have did Bain exaggerate its returns, and that's sort of what started this whole cascade over the past. Yeah. I, I let's mean, call it six years. I, I think the, the the issue is a broader one, which is if you are investing in venture capital and private equity, I, I would just tell investors understand that in the case of venture capital, you are investing in high beta, high beta, high risk, high return situations. So a venture capital fund should be measured. Not against the S and P, but against right. some some high beta, you know, uh, micro cap, uh, fund whatever. Yeah, a, a small cap, uh, high high beta fund. Private equity is a little bit different, right? Because all the private equity funds are 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 different, but they do lever. And so, at the end of the day, a private equity fund should have multiples of return of the S and P if you're using leverage. Um, I I believe they don't, and and so that's. That examination, and hedge funds began this, you and I both know, people began kind of wondering about hedge funds after 08. Right. The, the golden age of hedge funds was 2000 to 02. That's when <laughs> the markets went down. And let's, let's not forget, the 
2002 was worse than 08 for the stock market. The S&P went down 40%. The NASDAQ went down 80%. Yes. And, and, uh, versus 08 where the- and 40. It was basically 40 for everything. And, uh, peak to trough, the S&P was down about 57%, but NASDAQ didn't get nearly as shellacked in 08 as it did. Yeah. And, that it, was a concentrated and that's where 32, 29 to 32 like collapse. Yeah, it was. And that's where retail investors were. And, and hedge funds- Missed that, right? They, they, in mm-hmm. fact, some a lot of them made money in that yes. period. They were short the garbage and long value, and in, value actually in two thousand and two thousand three. And 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 that that performance ushered in the golden era of inflows from 03 to 08. <laughs> and and then hedge funds didn't. They didn't basically hedge. They didn't protect you in 07, 08. Right. And, and from there on in, people began to look at them differently and scrutinize them and look at the alphas and kind of disaggregate the results. And, and you know, hedge funds have had a basically rough go of it ever since of justifying their existence. Private equity has not had that. So, <laughs> so to be fair to hedge funds, I think the peak to trough returns according to some of, some of the peak to trough returns for some of the... Um, indices are something like down 29% in a year when the markets were down 38%, right. which is good on a relative basis, but sure as hell is an absolute return. Well, and then they underperformed on the way back up. That's the problem. That, that was the giant up 6 8% in, in, when the market's right. compounding so, at 17 And so, you know, you know, come for the high fees and losses and then stay for the underperformance right. on the snapback. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I get a nickel every time somebody says that, which is, a, which is fascinating. So, but... But but you get my point, and and I think private equity, which has seen these short sharp recessions, you know, and 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 then and an easing by the way of monetary policy over their life, private equity really has seen nothing but lower rates over over its golden era here. Um, what happens if if asset prices don't go anywhere and rates go higher for the next generation? I'm going to guess they're in trouble. I would guess that. Well, I guess that they may not be in trouble. I, I mean, their the, their returns will be in the trouble. the hoped for returns that the pension funds and endowments and sovereign wealth funds, who just constantly just assume private equity is going to earn them ten to twelve percent, um, uh, somewhat uncorrelated, you know, sort of boggles my mind. It, it, it's the ultimate correlated asset, theoretically. Can you stick around a little bit? I have a bunch more questions for you. I can stick around as long as you'd like. We have been speaking to Kinecos Associates' Jim Chanos. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things short-selling. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward uh, to this for a while. I have so many questions we didn't get to, and I have... Only a finite amount of time, and I want to get to my favorite questions I ask all of my guests. Um, But let me just go through one or two questions that I have to ask. So you're a fundamental guy. You you do not engage in technical shorting. You're not looking at trend breaks or support failures or any of that sort of 
chart chart reading? I've never been able to 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 make any money by looking at charts, it, and so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a strength. I don't think I have any edge. No edge. It comes back. So to so I, I you know. And what about the quantitative side? Um, I know you've talked about a lot of data, but do you guys use data at Kinecos? We we like everybody you know are, are looking at factor based. Uh, uh, investing and in, in what factors are driving our stocks one way or another. Um, the problem, of course, with with using using factor based data on on price performance and not on research. We'll get to that in a second. Is that, of course, by the time you analyze the factors, they become self defeating. And right. we had a quantitative um, hedged version of our short fund back in the mid '90s, and we realized this even back then that all the factors we were extracting from the portfolio, they didn't last that long. Mm -hmm. And I bet you now, I, I don't know for a fact, but I think that, that these factor-based observations cancel, the sm cancel themselves out even faster. And if we look at the returns of some of the algorithmic funds in the last few years, I think that bears it out. So we mentioned earlier Enron. Um, you have had a very good relationship with reporters and media, I uh, have to mention Bethany McLean, who, whose work I've always loved and who was right there in the middle of Enron. How has the media worked with you over the years? How have, have people reached out to you, whether it's an analyst um, sort of calling late at night? Yeah. What is your relationship with the press? Well, I mean, I think that, that reporters generally like talking to short sellers because they're going to get they're going to get the opposing point of view typically on a situation. No cheerleading, uh, um, so to speak. Well, it, look, there's there's thousands of people gainfully employed, making a lot of money, who are there to promote promote stories, right? It, mm -hmm. Whether it, whether it's PR firms, whether it's analysts, whether it's bankers, who are always going to tell you why why something is fantastic. Um, there's only a handful of people who are economically motivated to say, you know, wait a minute, <laughs> uh, hey, but. Um, you know, this glass might be half empty, not half full. And so, I, you know, most journalists I know that um, that we talk to have been talking to short sellers for years and, and just understand they're going to get the other side of the story. It might not be right, by the way, but at least they will hear a reasoned opinion as to why maybe the stock is overpriced, not underpriced. And, and a couple quotes of yours I, I would be remiss if I did not mention. Quote, in investing, you can be really right or and but temporarily quite wrong. What is that experience like? <laughs> that can't be fun. It's uh, hey, we're right. But it's, this really it's not. Hurts. It's not only not fun. It's constant. I mean, is it? Yeah, well, is it? Well, keep in mind. I mean, we started our fund at, uh, when the Dow was thirteen hundred. Our, our, our original short only fund. So um, this has been basically thirty years of, of not only up equity markets but lower interest rates, and I don't think people kind of appreciate. Just what an amazing tailwind most investors have had sure. for the past thirty to forty years. It, it is, it is unlike almost anything we've seen in American financial history. Mm -hmm. And so, this is people have gotten very, very used to this. If you're a short seller, you've gotten very, very used to basically coming in every day and struggling. I mean, just that that, that before anything happens, more likely than not, the the stocks you're short are going to be up. And so you had better be right. You had better be right in your fundamentals. And you can often be early. And often the things that the short sellers see that, that become really important, nobody cares about until the company acknowledges itself that it's a problem. 
So take a look at Valiant Pharmaceuticals, one of our, our celebrated shorts from a few years ago. We started shorting that at $130 before it doubled uh-huh. to $260. And then it went down a lot, and it went down fast. But, but the things we saw back in 2013 and 2014 didn't come to the fore until 2015 and, and, and late 2015. And, uh, and then the company finally had to realize, you know, admit that it had, it had some real issues. Um, that's, that's that can painful. be pretty maddening. Yeah, yeah. and painful. Yeah. I remember the F- Enron peaking, I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so 86 or somewhere in that range, on, it might have been the Bethany McLean article. It, it was took, right before. <laughs> it took a year for the stock to collapse. It, it fell so slowly. It's, it looks like a binary outcome. Hey, either this company is a fraud or it's not. So that doesn't mean it goes from 86 to 75 to 60. It should be zero or 86, not anything in between. It was a full year to, to collapse. I, I hate to burst your bubble bear. Enron was one of the easiest shorts we ever had. Really? Yeah, we started shorting it in the 60s. It did run to 80 in January of 01 on the Blockbuster announcement uh, that... that uh, the Blockbuster, they were getting into business with Blockbuster Video to stream video. Now, it was a wonderful announcement. The problem was they booked profits instantly on the announcement. I mean, they kind of got the technology right. It's now, of course, Netflix. But um, Well, there, but there wasn't streaming Netflix for another dozen years, so it looked a little bit like a... Uh, like a FUD announcement, um, there well, it, was no real technology. There, it didn't exist yet, and and so uh, it was still in, on the drawing boards. And 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 then Bethany's story came out in February of '01. Um, the stock basically kind of went eighty to zero in the next nine months. But uh, but it but it there were some of course gut wrenching rallies along the way. Along the way. All right. So let's jump into some of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. <laughs> um, well, I was I, I was pre med in college for about three days, uh-huh. um, and, and so that got me it got me moving toward the uh, the world of finance. Who were some of your early mentors? So I was lucky when I when I when I uh, got into the business. The fellow that that hired me away from Blythe Eastman Payne Weber, a guy named Bob Holmes, was was not only a mentor, but he stood behind me in, in kind of the darkest days of Baldwin. The stock had doubled. The New York partner was 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 uh, screaming for my head on a plate. I was all of uh, I was all of 20, uh, 25 years old, and um, and he stood behind me. He'd seen the work. He'd seen the documents. Um, he said, "You know, kid, you're right. You're right." Go ahead and publish again. We put a second report out. Wow! And right after it had doubled, after it doubled, and and just re- reaffirming everything we had, laying out all the documents we had, all the case we had, and and he was a guy who kind of taught me about courage and and you know courage your convictions, but he was my boss as well, so it was an important kind of lesson. When I moved to New York in '83, I, I had I had a number of wonderful wonderful mentors who who sort of introduce this Midwestern kid to New York City and Wall Street itself. You know, people like like Stephen Peck, um, Weiss Peck and Greer, oh, sure. who's passed on uh, a few years ago and, and just kind of took me under his wing. And, you know, all right, kid, we're going to Rayo's on Tuesday night and uh, I'm going to introduce you to everybody in town. And and um, he, Still was, there. he was tremendously, tremendously important man uh, in, in, in my growth on Wall Street. You know, and then there were... 
sort of my contemporaries, uh, uh, an, an old friend, uh, Jim Grant, who is on the journalistic side, who, mm-hmm. who, who of course is ancient. He's he's much much older than I am. Um, like thirty forty years, something like that, right? <laughs> he's gonna he, he's, he's, uh, he's gonna kill me. He's about I think 10, he's early eighties. He's, now, he's right? about he's about ten years older than me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but he started his his. His both. firm in '84. I started mine in '85. Right. So we both were kind of struggling, you know, entrepreneurs trying to get our businesses off the ground in the mid '80s. Both of us are sort of skeptics. You know, he, he had a pen in his hand, and I had I had clients' money, and um, I think we commiserated a lot and learned a lot from each other way back way back then. So, so I think bow ties age people. Um, <laughs> a lot of folks don't know Tom Keen is 29. That's uh, that's what a bow tie will do to you. Um, Tell us about the investors who influenced your approach to investing, to shorting. Yeah, so probably uh, the the investors uh, to stand out again. Both both people I met early in my career. Um, one, of course, was uh, the legendary Julian Robertson, mm-hmm. who's, who's who's of course still around, still investing, and his approach was something that sort of really galvanized me. You know, when I when I ran money for him and and. He'd call me up and he'd say, Jim, I see we're short XYZ Corp. You know, some guys in my shop like that. Why don't you come over for lunch? We'll talk about it. And so it was always like going into the lion's den, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Julian would be at one end of the table and, and there'd be a bunch of, of, of his, invest, his, his analysts, many of whom are now legendary investors in their own right, right. sitting around the table and we'd argue back and forth over whatever whatever stock it was and and you know what about this what about this and you'd better know your story for sure because they 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 knew their story often they agreed with me by the way but sometimes they didn't but but you had to hone your craft pretty well to understand again what is your edge what didn't investors know and then another one uh, who's no longer with us who uh, was also a bit of a mentor about New York as well was was the legendary short seller Bob Wilson Bob and I would have lunch from time to time, every few months, and then he had these wonderful dinners with Dick Gilder, um, you know, sort of every few months as well. And and I was privileged to to attend those. But Bob Bob also had one of the greatest quotes of all time that I never forget um, about about investing. And I was grumbling about someone who I worked with at Deutsche Bank at the time, and this guy was one of the world's worst investors. Everything he touched went down and he was a long investor and I, I was always grumbling because the guy was always just making a complete fool of himself at research meetings and, and internal meetings and Bob looked up at me over over uh, uh, his his cup of coffee or tea and, and just smiled his great little sort of devilish smile he said Jim just remember someone who is always wrong is just as valuable as someone who's always right <laughs> <laughs> just take the other side of the trade that's fantastic let's talk Let's talk a little bit about books. This is everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What fiction, nonfiction, market related, not? So I, I read a lot. I, I read a lot of history. Um, it, it, it's it's my thing. Um, not just financial history, but but broad history. So there's always there's a handful of books. Um, I always recommend to people if they haven't read them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorites uh, and one of my favorite historians is William Manchester. And everybody remembers his his MacArthur biography and okay. his uh, his Churchill his unfinished Churchill uh, trilogy. I think his daughter might have finished it for him. But the book that that uh, is is utterly one of those game changer books if you read history is A World Lit Only by Fire, which is the story of the late 
late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance and Reformation, um, and oh. written through this prism of great people like Magellan and Martin Luther and the Borgia Popes and, and, and Gutenberg. And, and basically, it, it just sort of sets the stage for modernity. And, and, he, and he tells the tale in a way as only he can. It's just wonderful history. I recommend it highly to to A to world make. lit only by fire. Right. And what? then in business books, um, I've always been, in my class, always loves um, my fraud history of fraud class. We love uh, The Match King by Frank Partner, uh-huh. which was uh, the voted best business book, I think, in 2009. Right. Um, and it's just the wonderful story of, of the greatest fraudster of, of the 1920s, Ivar Kruger. Um, who built this enormous empire on the back of, of uh, raising money for European countries uh, on the back of a match monopoly, and and how he became greater than J.P. Morgan by 1928, and basically dragged down most of the European banking system uh, with his collapse in 1932. Huh, that's fascinating. I, I, I love Portnoy's work. He did uh, Infectious Greed. Yes, he did. And then he did Weight, which is a fascinating uh-huh. psychological study. Uh-huh. Uh, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we, we've failed in all kinds of things. Um, and and uh, whether, it's, whether it's single stock ideas, I mean, you know, like anybody else, we're wrong. We're wrong a lot of times. In the short side, you have to be, of course, mindful of this. So whether it's Valiant doubling on you. Or, or America Online, which which went up eightfold on us from ten to eighty. Wow! And then of course we got out, and uh, and then Time Warner bought them, and uh, we never got back in, um, which was a really good lesson because it was a lesson not only in humility and timing, but it was a lesson on risk management. And in that case, it didn't carry us out um, because we kept the position very very small over the course of two three years. Um, so you know, I learned a lot. Uh, I learned a lot, a lot of painful lessons in the '90s, as uh, as as the fantastic years we had in our first five six years as, as hedge fund managers became a struggle, and and it just the the early '90s to mid '90s were just a terrible time on the short side, and I can imagine, and and just <laughs> you know whether it was paying people out of my own pocket or 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 having to uh, you know, to really go and search hard for investors, you know it was a it was a it was a time. Uh, we got through it, and I got through it with great partners and great employees. But uh, you know, a little adversity sometimes uh, is, a, is a good life lesson. That, that's how you harden steel. Um, tell us what you do for fun. What do you do to relax when you're out of the office? So I I, I travel a fair amount. Um, I, I enjoy that. Um, I, I read a fair amount, and I do teach. I mean, the teaching has been um, over the last eight years. I teach up at Yale at, at uh, SOM. And also uh, every other year at the University of Wisconsin, which is my family alma mater, mm-hmm. on Wisconsin, and uh, and uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's been enjoyable. Uh, I enjoy interacting with the students. Um, it's a fun course. We teach uh, starting in the 1690s all the way up to today, um, and we teach uh, teach uh, about uh, some of the great episodes of, of financial market fraud from the Mississippi scheme and South Sea bubble. All the way to uh, to Donald Trump's hotel and resorts, and uh, <laughs> uh, and some of the more recent things, um, and 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 do so in a thematic and systematic way. So, speaking of of students in in college or grad student, if one of them or a millennial came up to you and said, "I'm looking um, for some career guidance and I'm considering a, a, a job in finance," 
what what sort of advice would you give them? One of the things I, I, I tell my students and, and, and young people who, who come up to me to ask for that kind of advice is I, I sort of ask them, you know, are, are you is this something you, you feel you want to do as a career in a big institution? Do you want to, do you feel you want to go out and do something on your own, entrepreneurial? And if it's the latter, I try to impress upon them that unlike what they might consider conventional wisdom, I tell them that the time to take risks is when they're youngest. Mm -hmm. Yes, you need certain skills, of course, but it's very, very hard once you're in your 40s and 50s and you've got the obligations of life, Mortgage, financial, kids, family, sure. you know, education, college, to then up and say, I'm going to go do this on my own. And, and, and by the way, if you do and it doesn't work out, you've kind of, that's it. You're done. Right. And, and, and on the other hand, if you're 25, 26, and you have a great idea and you have a backer, go for it. If you fail, nobody's going to hold it against you. You you know you 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 were in fact they might even admire you for it, and and so I always tell people if they're going to go do something with 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 a small group of people or whatever, do it when you're youngest, not when you're not when you're twenty years or thirty years into it, because you're not going to be able to do it as easily then, and if if it fails and by the way most things do, um, you just dust yourself off and, and pick yourself up and dust yourself off and you know. Go do something else. It, it, it's not the end of the world for you. Um, very interesting, very interesting advice. Our final question, what is it that you know about short selling today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you first launched Kinecos? Not to do it. <laughs> is that true? No. But, I say, but, but again, my sense of timing wasn't exactly fantastic, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, you, yeah, know. You, launched a, you launched a short fund just as a 30-year bull market was getting Yeah, pretty way. much. Exactly. So, uh, again, timing is not our, our forte. Um, look, it, it's uh, lots of lessons I've learned along the way um, uh, on, on managing risk, both on, in a portfolio, a c career, um, and and uh, sadly, however, in our business, you sort of have to learn them yourselves. It's it's hard to impart them. You can you can speak all you want, but the market is is a, is a cruel mistress, and uh, she tends to uh, she tends to impart her lessons on everyone singularly and individually. We have been speaking with Kinecos Associates Jim Chanos. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch. You can see any of our other two hundred or so conversations on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg, Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put together uh, these conversations. Medina Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.